Hi, it's David Ray here, and welcome to the first in a new collection of podcasts we're going to run with a variety of external voices and external experts. So we're going to start running a collection of podcasts with startup founders, so people who've had the courage to go with conviction of their idea, build it out, and hear a little bit about their experience, their personal journeys, their industry views, their visions of the future, and a bit of the context that's happening around us, because we're clearly living in interesting times just now. So the first of these, I'd like to introduce Matt Smith. Matt Smith is a chief exec of a company called Steeleye. So Matt, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being the first up. Clearly high expectations for both of us in that. So you've had 20 years of technology experience, management experience in and around commodities and global roles. You've worked at Bloomberg, you've worked at Noble Group, etc. So tell us a little bit maybe about what your story is. So how did you get to here? What have you done? And then we'll move on afterwards to maybe a bit more about what the specific opportunity in this company is. Data is at the heart of everything. But what I saw time and time again was, although people speak about data and how to use data and the power of data and how it can be leveraged for opportunity, I saw very few instances of people really successfully proving that value. I spent eight years at Noble Group. Noble was a global commodity company. It's a global commodity company, although much smaller than it was in my day. A large portion of that, I was the uh, chief information officer in IT in the energy trading business. And there I was paired up with a chief operating officer and a financial officer. The financial officer was actually XBP. And the three of us set out to reorganize this business, bring it into the future, but also grow it. And we were growing it through acquisition. We were growing it organically. But there was a huge amount of strain around this business because of the rate at which we were growing. We had all kinds of different trading systems. And we had all kinds of different risk systems. And one day we had a, a new chief executive join. And his problems were that each of these different trading and risk systems would produce positions in P&L. It would come out of those systems and it would go into spreadsheets. And in those spreadsheets, it would go through the functional areas like risk and finance and operations and trading. And as a result, what was happening was things didn't reconcile. So when he would speak to the market risk guys and he'd speak to the ops people and the finance people, everybody would be giving variances on what should have been consistent. And it was because these things were being managed through manual spreadsheet processes. When we looked at this, having been at, at the banks like RBS and um, Aviva as a, an asset manager, I had seen data warehouse initiatives either completely fail or very much underwhelmed. And my rationale for that was that people would look at a, a business problem and then they would apply technologies that were designed for big data to a specific business problem. And all you end up doing is creating a very expensive database. So what I had said to my team was focus on not the problem in the business. Let's focus on data. Now, data and technology don't always align. So when we looked at this problem, we spent a, a very large period of time categorizing data. So you've got pricing data, you've got fundamental analytic data, you've got quantitative analytic data, all these types of data points, their characteristics lean themselves to what's called time series. You have position, you have P&L, you have sentiments and receivables. Um, again, different characteristics that usually would lean towards old relational databases, but those databases don't scale. And then you have reference data. Now, reference data could be a geolocation, it could be a security, or it could be something within an application like an access control point. So we focused on that. And it was about a three-year journey from the beginning of investing in this initiative to actually being able to deliver value. And we built this platform that could 
handle all these data points. We bring it in in its raw form from its source systems. And as we exposed it into the application layer, we would do the normalizations, map this data. So what it meant was we had golden records from the original source systems. We had the ability to interact with all these different data types. And then we had an application scaffolding platform that would allow us to build applications quickly. And in the end, for our energy business, we built a global product control system start to back in about seven months. I mean, this is just unheard of uh, across all these different energy trading platforms. And in that, what ended up happening was we ended up with a single feed into our general ledger where we have a spaghetti string. We did some business process changes as well, but we got our month down from two and a half, three weeks down to a couple of days. And we had a single product control workflow, which meant any of our businesses in the energy space could work off the same functional platform. So our people were more repurposable across the different types of trading activities and systems we were using. And then the byproduct of all that was everybody was working off the same data, and we solved that business problem. At Noble, I worked with some of the smartest people I've ever worked with and the most motivated and driven people I've ever worked with. I joined Noble at the end of 2008, and I think the company back then did around $25 billion in revenue, and at the peak, it was up at around 90 We went from 6,000 people in the company to 16,000 people, so an enormous growth. In the business unit that I ended up in, which was the energy business, that was the newest business for Noble, and it was probably one of the strongest businesses we had. You know, on its own, I think could have been a remarkable trading company. When I left, I went to the Caribbean with my young family for a few months and recouped and came back and ready to go. And this is ultimately where we ended up starting Steel Life Company. You went from having a career in large corporates and enterprises to having this idea and having a belief in that to then acting upon that, leaving your job, going all in on basically this idea. How do you do that? What did it feel like? I'm most curious about what your pitch at home was, never mind what your pitch in the office is, if that makes sense. The transition was the scariest thing I've ever done. I went and spoke to consultants I knew from the past, and I took this thing over to the partners there, and I said to them, I'm thinking about quitting my job and building this business. Please tell me if I'm insane. They kind of laughed and looked at me like, no, I mean, if you can deliver what you say you're delivering, this is solid stuff. I spent quite a lot of time talking to my wife about it. And I'd always wanted to start a company. And I guess it's kind of like having kids. There's never a good time for that. I had two very young children. It was probably the worst time for doing that. But in terms of a risk profile perspective, one day in March, I was standing in front of my old office. And I was talking to my brother. And like I was 99% there. He just gave me some advice. You've got the idea, you've got the team that can do this, what you've always wanted to do. You're an entrepreneur by nature. Why not be an entrepreneur by practice? So what is the elevator pitch then for Steel Eye? If you had to describe it in a nutshell for us as a trading organization, but us as individuals in that, what is that elevator pitch for us? When I look at regulation, I see this as being an industry-wide data cleansing exercise. All financial firms have all this data that they're required to aggregate, analyze, and report. We provide you a platform that helps you consolidate all that data into one place in a canonical view. We provide you with a set of applications that help you solve for a variety of regulatory challenges that you have to, under international law, solve for, where today you're buying these things at very expensive prices from four or five different vendors. We give it to you in one, we give it to you at a very fair price, and we empower you to leverage that data. Have you been surprised by any customers in terms of how they've used the product? And how do you see them kind of taking that idea, applying it within their own context, within their own commercial models? 
what we found was almost immediately we were being embraced by every element of the market. So, you know, a large portion of our clients are broker dealers on the sell side of the market. We've got a lot of asset managers and hedge funds and commodity companies and banks. And in a very short time, we've gotten well over 50 clients. And, you know, we're, we're signing up five, six clients a month these days at every different service. So what surprised me was only with these types of technologies, you, you see one element of the market pulling you in. And I thought that a lot in commodities, by the way. We, we in commodities really thought we were quite different. And I think there are differences when you look at physical elements of the market. But for a lot of these things, you know, they're consistent. It doesn't really matter if you're a bank, a broker, a commodity company, a family office, a wealth manager, you know, you're still covered by it. What's been interesting to me is that some of the market, when they look at regulation, look at it as a checkbox exercise, and they solve a particular problem. And given that we offer an array of things, they usually pick one thing. So let's say we're going to do method two reporting for, for one of our clients. We normalize their data to enable that to happen, and we keep records of it. I think in many cases, firms have failed to actually understand what they're achieving as part of that process of signing on mm. the COI, which is, We've actually, on the back of that, given you a data lake that you can use for other things. And it's only until afterwards you can go in and demonstrate that. We can demonstrate the other elements of the platform working, but more importantly, we can demonstrate the utilization of this in business context. Things like creating client portals so your clients can log in and look at how they're interacting with you. It's hugely powerful, and we're seeing some of our clients even position that as a competitive edge, whereas before they would never have had the ability to produce these types of reports and information to the market. You've mentioned about data and how data has gone from being this thing you have to have, but it's a bit clunky to being actually an asset of some type and some potential gain from that. How do you see the industry's approach changing to data, A, and B, what do you think the biggest next change in data has to be? Market data has been incredibly lucrative and it's built massive tech companies who've been able to acquire this data, capture it, and monetize it. What bothers me about that is the data is derived from your data. The data is derived from the market, not from any individual firm. It's just they happen to have the ability to capture it in a monolithic way. One of the things that really excited me about MIFID 2 was that there was a lot of pressure put on financial firms to do things that required market data, required instrument reference data. And the only way at that moment in time to get access to that data to do things like best execution or some of the reporting was to buy this data. So what the regulators came in and said, we will make certain types of data available to the market. So we can get you post-trade transparency market data. So systematic internalizers will report to an approved publication arrangement. Those publication arrangements will make that market data that's derived from those SIs available to the market for free after 15 minutes, and they can monetize it in real time if they want. We then started to try to get this market data from all the approved publication arrangements, and lo and behold, most of them made it either almost impossible or actually impossible to get access to the data. And they knew that it was a threat to some very lucrative market data they had. So they put up the barriers. One of them basically said to us, you can have it, but you're going to have to pay us 400,000 pounds a year to just access it. And then we're going to charge a bunch of money for every bit of data use. That is completely unacceptable. And it's against the, the whole purpose of, of these things. And, and the regulators are finally taking action against those things. But it took a very long time. We're not ever going to gouge our clients for anything. You know, it's just a foundational principle. It's like open, fair, and transparency on every level. So I think the world will start to go that way. I think those who think that they can continue to hoard data and be punitive in terms of charging for it, their days are numbered.
So we're living in uh, interesting times just now, Matt. The context around us is changing fast, whether it's maturing technology or proliferation of data and creation of data. But the more immediate context, I guess, of lockdown and virus and the global ramifications of that, if you dust off your crystal ball, what do you see as being the change that's going to come as a result of all this? Suddenly you have a world that's thrust into this environment where everything is different, where the video conferencing capabilities are truly being tested. I mean, evolutions I've seen on Zoom in the last couple of months have been remarkable. You saw Louis Vuitton change their production line to create hand sanitizer in the early days. Burberry and Barber changing their production lines to stop printing very expensive coats to producing protective equipment for our frontline workers. Formula One teams, Dyson, banding together to create new ventilators. And all around the world right now, entrepreneurs and great ideas are being born, like burger restaurants providing build-your-own-burger delivery packs so you can cook at home and make your favorite fast food. Wine merchants delivering wine that would normally go to restaurants to help. I think in one year's time, we'll find all kinds of amazing new companies popping up. Keep your eye open, because right now, some amazing companies are going to be born. So, Matt, we'd like to end our podcast with a quick-fire round of questions, as in the form of every good game show, I guess. So, three quick questions around a bit more about you, I guess. First one is about inspiration. What's an organization that inspires you for their work in innovation? I used to work in Formula One many years ago when I spent some time at McLaren. And while I was there, what I discovered was they had a decision called Applied Technologies, which is taking Formula One technology innovations and ways of thinking to the world. You may or may not know it. Every time you walk into Sainsbury's and open up the freezer cupboard, there is Formula One technology in there that's making those things more efficient, driving down energy costs and protecting the environment. We've seen Formula One teams come together to create new things like transport protective equipment for newborns. And here we saw them you know, almost overnight created a new mechanism for, for ventilators, which I'm sure they will be there in the future. I am just in awe of the Formula One teams. I'm grateful to their contribution to society and think that they're amazing innovators beyond the sport. You've talked about passions. You've talked about what's important to you. What are your other passions, I guess, outside work? And would you ever take one of those passions and turn it into a business opportunity? If so, what would that be? I love to cook. And one of the things that I have a passion for is the simple French baguette. So every time I go to Paris, I love this stuff. It's just so simple and so amazing. And I've always wondered how to make them. The last couple of weeks, I've started to experiment, and I finally cracked it where I'm making baguettes that are as good as they are in France. And for the wine tasting, I've made a couple. But I'm blown away at how easy it is and that I can do it. Would I ever do that as a business? Yeah, who knows? We're in the midst of lockdown. People are trying to find things to do with their time to create a dislocation between work and home or what have you. I'm a big fan of books and films and what have you. Anything you've read or watched recently that you would give us as a final recommendation? In my very early days, somebody handed me a book by a guy called Ben Horowitz, who's a long-term tech entrepreneur. Uh, And the book is called The Hard Things About Hard Things. There's so much in it about reflecting on yourselves, and and a lot of the challenges you face in the corporate world are in it. If you ever want to know what it's like to be in the dark days of an entrepreneur, there's a chapter in it called The Struggle. And if you read the chapter The Struggle, you'll understand the raw emotional feel to be in the hard times of hard times. But on on the flip side, there is a a light at the end of any tunnel, and uh, most people will find that light. Yeah, I think it's a great book. I remember reading it a while ago. And the other thing that's done by that book, 
was his passion for hip-hop, if I remember. <laughs> so that kind of comes through in titles of every chapter as a hip-hop track that meant something to him at some point in his life. So let me close with saying thanks. It's been really interesting hearing your story. Kudos to you. The courage to come out of a corporate environment, find an idea, have a passion around that idea and take the step into the unknown, do something about it. Point one. Point two is I'm really struck by how you've done it. So all you're referencing on culture and purpose and intention and what you want to build as a company and as a culture and what's important to you in doing that, I think resonates really strongly with me and with us and is great to hear and great to see because it's not always easy to do. On top of all that, it's clearly going great guns and I'm very pleased to hear it's going even better in these current challenging times. So good for you and wish you all the best in the future. But thanks very much for your time and thanks for your openness in this conversation. Yeah, well, th thanks for including me in, in the podcast and I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you.